Got a Bible? Turn to the book of Proverbs this morning. We start a new series today, a series on sexuality. And um, sometimes that's an awkward thing to talk about. We have Sunday school available for uh, people this morning. I've been looking around and see any kids here that don't know about this. So uh, second service, we'll have uh, classes available for kids third grade through sixth grade if parents want that. Um, Basically, these weeks, um, we're kind of aiming for the content to be around PG-12 uh, something like that. Um, if if I were um, a parent again of children, I would probably keep my kids ten and over in this. Uh, we're not going to. Uh, we're going to be careful not to try to unduly uh, unsettle them. But we live in a day and age that's radically different than the day and age in which I grew up. And as I'll mention later, where uh, didn't have an internet, didn't have kids talking with uh, me at seven years old about the birds and the bees and all the other things. And um, so it's a, it's a different a- day and age, and we want to be we want to be mindful about how we can best help our kids. <clears throat> we do uh, live in a culture that's highly sexualized, hyper sexualized. Um, we have kind of, it seems like culture has a almost a sexual fixation, um, and of course it's all the men's fault, right? Um, the old cliche was that a man thinks about, uh, has some sexual thought every seven seconds. Now, a number of years ago, um, uh, there were a group of researchers that actually tried to determine whether or not that's true. And uh, so in 2011, there was uh, Dr. Terry Fisher at Ohio State University uh, studied admittedly a narrow sampling, uh, but took about 300 undergraduate students, gave them little golf clickers, and asked them to click it every time they had a, a sexual thought during the day. And the responses were all over the map, and you have to understand this is, these are people ages 18 to 25, so they're going to have probably a little different response than if they're 35 to 55 or older. But the conclusion was this, that on average, <clears throat> a man thinks about, has a sexual thought 19 times a day, and a woman 10 times a day. And so this uh, whole idea that men are the only ones that think about sex and that they think about it all the time um, is, is, was somewhat debunked. But one of the things that Dr. Fisher came out from that uh, arguing is that people are sexual beings and thinking about sex is pretty, it's pretty common. And most every facet of our culture believes, knows that and believes it. That's why 20% of all marketing that's aimed at you to get you to buy everything from soap to Chevy's to soda pop is done with either explicit or implicit sexual images or uh, con- content. 20% of all marketing is trying to get you to buy their product, convincing, hoping to convince you that you will be more sexual inter- sexually interesting to other people or that you will get more sex. And of course, Hollywood believes this. There's a reason that they make three times as many R-rated movies each year than they do PG movies, and they make a boatload of money doing it, and that doesn't even include the porn industry, which makes 150% of the annual profit that Hollywood makes on its products, $97 billion industry. All of those things, and we could add many more facts and statistics to that, and yet 
the bottom line is that the church, and I include ours, the church rarely talks about sex. And, our parent, and, and parents, based on my anecdotal evidence, even as Christian parents, we rarely talk about sex. Over the years that I've done premarital counseling, I would say that 75 to 80% of those couples, many of whom grew up in Christian homes, have said, my parents didn't talk to us about sex at all, or simply had one conversation with me growing up. How is that possible? How can it be that in the culture this is uh, obsessive, and in the church, in the church, that's quiet. Into that vacuum of silence will speak other voices of authority. And so we have public school teachers teaching our children about sex from their vantage point. Their peers, our kids' peers, speak into our children's lives about sex from their vantage point. I remember being 12 years old, sitting in a tree out behind my friend's yard. And we had been invited to their house for uh, lunch after church. I'm 12 years old, and my friend begins to tell me for the first time in my hearing about sexual matters. And I remember my jaw hanging down on my chest and, and uh, my eyes being bug-eyed. I'm like, he's got to be making this stuff up. I'm 12 years old. It's one of the reasons that I harp on parents about speaking to your children younger and younger rather than waiting and waiting because it's a new era with digital technology and so forth. But other voices are going to speak into their lives about sexual matters. And that's, we haven't even mentioned the porn industry in terms of their influence in children's lives. Yes, in children's lives, because today most kids have access to the internet, more and more have access to smartphones, and if they don't, their peers do. And so that by the time parents uh, with their good intentions may get around to talking to their children about sexual matters, it's a little like the old joke where dad comes to uh, his son and says, Jimmy, I want to talk with you about sex. And Jimmy says, okay, what do you want to know, dad? Because he's already heard it. And because he's heard it way before dad ever got around to talking to him about it, he may be convinced that dad doesn't really know that much about it or that he's not an authority on it or, or that everything he's heard so far, this is the real truth, regardless of how accurate it is or regardless of how shaped it is by a good God who made it, who is the sex engineer. <clears throat> Common worldview that we are faced with today and that our kids are being faced with is that sex is primarily a mechanical operation. In 2011, two movies came out of uh, Hollywood, both with a, virtually the same plot line, same story. One was called No Strings Attached. The other one was called Friends with Benefits. And it told the story about a, a, a guy and a girl who were friends <clears throat> and who decided that they're going to simply use each other for sex. They're not going to have a date. They're not going to have a relationship. They're not going to move toward marriage. They're simply friends with benefits. They're, they're no strings attached. And what's interesting is that in both stories, somebody falls in love with the other person. Why would that be? Unless God intended sex and relationship to remain attached. 
This thinking that <laughs> sex is primarily about mechanics comes from, in part, a growing conviction in the culture, and this is a culture worldwide, that we are primarily mechanical pieces of equipment. And so we have genitals, we have sex hormones from estrogen to testosterone, progesterone, coursing through our body. We have uh, clusters of highly sensitive nerve endings that, that strategi- strategically located that can set our worlds on fire. And we are much like a Buick or a GMC truck. You know, if, if your truck blows an engine, you can take that engine out, you can get another engine, you put it right back, you can keep the, the body and the transmission and all the other parts, you just put a new engine in, and it's been made so that everything goes together just as it should. The bolt holes are, are at the same places. You can attach the, the belts and the hoses just like you did with the other engine. We're, we're simply uh, mechanical pieces of equipment. And we do what mechanical equipment does. We, a car goes down the road, a human being has sex with other people. And so if somebody is agreeing to have sex with me, regardless of whether or not there's a relationship involved, it's okay. If, if Two consenting adults, right? Mechanical, common worldview. And yet what is interesting is as our culture has <clears throat> bought into this increasingly, there is increasingly less and less satisfaction with sex. In fact, psychologists, interestingly enough, are finding their offices flooded with people, many of them men, but some women now as well, who cannot sexually perform with a real human being. Like the story of a man who on his wedding night has to either lay a digital picture of someone doing something he wants who's not real, his wife's over here, or playing porn in the background on television because that's the only way he can sexually perform. And psychologists are trying to figure out what to do with this. Here we live in this age of increasing access to sex, and yet sex is being turned on its head where it's available everywhere, that in itself is creating some problems. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Screwtape Letters, that humanity has an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. In other words, when you take a beautiful gift that God has designed and created and you exploit it for your own purposes outside of how he has engineered it, don't be surprised if the law of diminishing returns kicks in. What I want to do these weeks is to try to reclaim a Christian worldview of sex. And I say reclaim because increasingly all these other worldviews are not only making their mark in the culture, but they're making the mark in the church as well. And the tragedy is that other sex worldviews are often little more than grenades that are packed with lies and half-truths that tend to blow up in the hands of the holders, but also always, always, always promise more than they deliver. And this is one of the things, one of the truths that our culture is finding out increasingly. All right, we're going to read a couple of verses in Proverbs chapter 5, excuse me, beginning of verse 15. 
Proverbs is uh, written, uh, I'll say, by King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, who, if you read his, about his life, also became a fool. And yet so much wisdom and from his writings uh, we draw. And in the chapters leading up to chapter 5, he is speaking as a father uh, to a son, admonishing his son to, uh, whatever you do, my son, pursue wisdom. Wisdom crawls out to you in the streets and, and, and get her, draw her to you. And then he gets to chapter 5, and he, if you, uh, translation like mine says, avoid, the heading to the chapter is avoid the immoral woman. Avoid the immoral woman. But he's not just saying watch out for bad women. He's saying watch out for your bad heart, my son. Watch out that you don't be seduced into that uh, non-married relationship. And he says this beginning of verse 15. Drink water from your own well. Share your love only with your wife. Why spill the water of your springs in the streets having sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She's a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts satisfy you always. May you always be captivated by her love. Father God, um, we do want to talk about what the world is talking about because it's really not the world's gift. It is your good gift. And uh, we, we want to pass on to the next generations the goodness of your gift, not just the warnings about the deviations from the goodness. And so especially in these two front, uh, front end messages this week and next week, I pray that you would give us a, a, a glorious, rapturous, um, God-consumed vision of this grand gift. That as our children grow up and pursue marriage themselves, they, they, they might be marked more by anticipation and hope and joy than fear and worry and concern. Uh, that, that as they look around them at the landscape of sexuality in the world, rather than seeing what's out there as wondrous and glorious, they might see it in the context of marriage between a man and a woman as wondrous and glorious. That you would guard our hearts of our children and our young people and even our own hearts from the folly and the confusion that can so often be rampant because of the Kool-Aid that we're drinking in the culture. I, I, I pray for the lies that are conveyed by Hollywood that sex outside of marriage is far superior to sex inside of marriage. Even some of our friends believe that and convey that, that we would recognize the lies, that we'd recognize the half-truths, and that maybe we would work harder about cultivating the wonder of sex within marriage than longing for the, um, the f imitation outside of marriage. And that our hearts would be, uh, uh, those of us who are married, that our hearts would be drawn to uh, maximizing and capitalizing on the gift so that the world would see something in our marriage of how this wondrous gift has made marriage that much more glorious and how in the end it even points to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
So the first thing I want to address this morning is that lie that sex is simply mechanical and that it's all about hooking up. Rather, I want to argue that sex is spiritual. It is in part designed to get us to look up. Sex has been seen as sacred from ancient times. It's interesting, as we were in Greece the other week, uh, and in most of the souvenir shops, you could find um, little booklets or images or greeting cards that, that, um, that there's a heading to it called Sex in Greece, as if sex in Greece is something different or special. Well, sex in ancient Greece. Even people in ancient times knew that sex was important and the sex mattered. And so there were, <clears throat> excuse me, there are frescoes all over ancient Greece and ancient Italy. We were in Pompeii 10 years ago and there were 13 brothels in po- ancient Pompeii. And there are all kinds of, um, of vivid paintings on the walls and on the arches about sexual acts as if there's something special about it. In ancient times, in, in, in pagan cultures, people would, uh, a wife would leave her husband in the evening, go down to the local temple, and they w- she would find a, 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 a she, he, uh, they would find prostitutes down at the temple to have sex with. And then they would go back home and say, well, what would they do that for? It's like coming to church for uh, sex? Well, what's that all about? Because they believed that there was something sacred about that. Something sacred that wasn't true in the marriage home. You can see how the culture and even world religions have taken God's good gift and they've distorted and twisted it. There's an element of truth there. It is true that sex is sacred. It is true that sex is spiritual. But they had it distorted. In their minds, it was kind of like a human pornography for the gods. They thought if they would have this sexual relationship with a religious prostitute, that the gods would look down on earth, they would notice, and it would stimulate the gods to provide fertility for the people of the earth. Fertility for the ground so that there would be good spring rains and the crops would grow well. Fertility for the homes so that the the women would become pregnant and bear children. They had some kind of understanding that sex is somehow created to the eternal, somehow created to the cosmic. It's beyond just anchored here on earth. There was a novel written back in the mid-20th century by Bruce Marshall who made this very curious but impactful statement. He hypothesized that the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. The young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. What in the world does he mean by that? Pastor Charlie and I were in Nevada in November working with uh, one of our missionaries, Larissa, who works with uh, churches far flung apart, very tiny churches. And of course, in Nevada, prostitution is legal. And we went past about four different brothels. One of the things that hit me when I saw them is how run down they looked. Two of them looked like poorly maintained chicken houses. And you kind of have this idea about the, you know, the, the brothel being sort of a, uh, a, a flesh version of a casino. Lots of glitz and lights and beauty, and that's not the case at all. And Larissa was telling us some stories about some of the prostitutes and what, what her life was like. It's awful. It should break our hearts. And listen, guys, <clears throat> and if we're, 
Statistically average at Keystone, that means that 62% of us who are men are routinely looking at pornography. 62% of us, two-thirds. And it should break us when we look at stuff like that on the computer to know what life is probably like for those women. And I thought about that, that here are, here are men going up and they're, they're paying money to have a, an hour or two with a woman. And Marshall argues that ultimately what he is looking for unconsciously is God. How, how does that work? One of the reasons that some um, men especially um, bounce from woman to woman to woman is because they're looking for something in that one woman that they didn't find so they go to another woman, they don't find it there, they go to another woman and they have their sexual experience but it's kind of ho-hum and they move on and they move on and move, move on. Why? Because they're looking in for in sex, what they're looking for in sex is something that sex can never provide. They're looking for something that is far more cosmic than sex can ever provide. And yet, sex was in part designed to point us toward the cosmic. God engineered it. I remember as a a young man, and even in my 20s, even after I'd been married a while, thinking, I'll bet when God created sex, and he saw all that happened to it after sin came into the world, he thought, oh my goodness, I should have never done that. And I wondered if God, you know, is wringing his hand saying, I wish I could turn back the clock or, or maybe I should just make everybody asexual again. And yet if you read enough of the scripture, even this passage here in Proverbs 5, you, you don't conclude that, do you? This is a glorious thing. It's designed to serve specific purposes that are wonderful and blessing to the couple. And also point somewhere else. God engineered, your, God engineered your sexuality and the relationship, if you're married, to your spouse. He engineered it. Hebrews 3, 4 says, every house has a builder, but the one who built everything is God. The one who built everything is God. And that includes the house that we're talking, using the imagery these weeks of a house. That includes the house of sexuality. God created it. He invented it. He built it. That means the genitals that each of us has, God imagined in his mind and then crafted. That means that those sex hormones that are coursing through our bodies, God designed them and he inserted them in there. That means that those strategically located clusters of highly sensitive nerves that when touched go off like the 4th of July, God placed them where he placed them and he invented them, he made them. For you. These are things that wisely and in a timely way need to be told to our children who too often only hear fearful and bleak and sometimes crippling messages from parents on sex that are reduced to a simple word, don't. And then we wonder why our children grow up, become adults, and have sexually functional problems in their marriages. When they've been told, don't, 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 don't. And one day at the wedding altar, they're told, do. 
And they're like, but, but, but I've been hearing don't all my life. That's all I can think about. They need to hear from those who love them and have born them and raised them that God has a good gift waiting for you inside marriage. Sex was engineered by God for a number of purposes. One, to unite husband and wife. To unite husband and wife. We're going to talk a lot more about this next Sunday. I talk about sex as the glue to marriage, and I'll flesh that out a little bit more next week. But the scriptures say in Genesis 2.24, says, A man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become what? One flesh. One flesh. Now, it didn't say become one entity or they become one couple or they become one group or, or one something. It, one flesh. Now, that means more than simply sexual relationship, but it doesn't mean less than that. The two shall become one flesh. There is a uniting together that happens and occurs in the sexual union every time that occurs. It's a, it's a drawing together of that husband and wife. But sex is also designed to get us to look up. Again, I, I want so much to, to have us who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to think about how it is God has designed sexuality not just for our physical pleasure, not just for drawing us together as a husband and wife, but also drawing us to look up. You say, well, what are you talking about? Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> speaks about husband and wife. This is the passage that I preach on every time I do a wedding meditation. It starts in verse 22 and says, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to what? Ladies, as to the Lord. As to the Lord. He's, he's comparing the relationship of a wife and her husband to the relationship between Christ and the church. So, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as men. Men? Thank you. Christ loved the church. Husbands, love your wives as, again, the comparison there, as Christ loved the church and what? Yes, and gave himself for her. Husbands, are you doing that? Are you giving yourself for your wife? Say, well, I'm the boss. I'm the man in the house. She's to submit to me. There's not one word in the Bible where you are told to make sure your wife submits to you. Can I get an amen from the ladies on that? Not one place. It says <clears throat> to the wives, wives, submit yourself to your husbands. It says to the husbands, don't go remind your wife of that. It says to the husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's your job. But do you see the comparisons there? You have a love, love, if you're married, you have a love relationship with your spouse. Just like Christ has a love, love relationship with his bride, the church. And so ostensibly, God intends for every one of you married couples to have the kind of relationship that draws people to look up and draws you as a husband and wife to look up. There's a reason that the sexual thrill between a husband and a wife, it just kind of 
if done right and if the relationship is healthy, is off the charts. There's no other comparable thrill. It's, listen, it's otherworldly. Part of what it's designed to do is to get you to look up. There's a reason that the Bible begins with a wedding and ends with a wedding. Revelation chapter 19. Christ and his bride finally together at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Your sexual relationship, husband and wife, in part is meant to draw you to look up And because it affects your marriage relationship and is supposed to improve your marriage relationship, as people look in at your marriage relationship, not you having sex, but the results of that, they should see something that draws their eyes upward. Why is it, do you think, that fewer and fewer people in the culture are enthralled with the idea of marriage? when so many Christian marriages are not of the caliber that they would draw anybody to look up. John Piper says that God created us with sexual passion so that there would be language to describe what it means to cleave to him in love and what it means to turn away from him to others. That's another part of how the sex act draws us to look up. You look at the Old Testament and see again and again and again God describing himself as a husband pursuing his wife Israel and how his wife Israel has abandoned him and turned to other lovers, not doing as as a prostitute would, receiving pay for sex, but pursuing other lovers like Assyria and Babylon and paying them for sex. Unfaithfulness. You'll see this language Throughout the Old Testament of God saying, you've been unfaithful to me. I'm your faithful husband. And we had a relationship and then you left and pursued other lovers. God created us with sexual passion so that there would be language to describe what it means to cleave to him in love. And what it means to turn away from him to others. Sex is ultimately spiritual. Now back to our text here in Proverbs Sex is to be kept in the house. Again, we're thinking about the house as this this walled-off relationship between a husband and a wife. And I see in this this father's counsel to his son, I see both a fort and a fountain. A fort keeps others out. A fountain nourishes those uh, in the walls. He says, verse uh, 15, son... Drink water from your own well. Share your love only with your wife. Now, your body needs water to live and to thrive. And in the same way, your marriage needs sex to live and to thrive. That's what we're going to talk about next week especially. He says make sure you preserve it just for your wife. Again, Jesus only has one lover. And in the same way, we are to have only one lover to keep the rest out. And then he says never to be shared with strangers. I came across a curiosity a number of months ago when I started working on this series. Um, In Florida, there are, um, uh, do you know what a swinger is? Married couples who have sex with other partners um, and the husband and wife agree to this. In Florida, there's a, a couple that profess to be Christian and they use swinging as a way to evangelize, share the gospel. You just want to go, 
I don't even know what to do with that. Now, when unbelievers are involved in that kind of stuff, I, I get it. Because they don't understand the spiritual nature of sexuality and its relationship to love and a marriage. Here's a couple named Bob and Tess, not believers, and they're swingers. And they said, to us, sex is not love. Sex is sex. It's just natural to be attracted to people, to other people, I I mean, that's just nature. And so we decided one day not to suppress nature. Now, they've been married 19 years been swinging for 14 years of that and I want to say you know again what did we talk about this idea that sex is mechanical lies and half-truths that's the enemy's ploy and by the way don't ever fall for this lie that Satan is only about full-blown lies he his work is far more effective when he comes along with half-truths and says, oh, this, 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 and this. And there's a piece of a truth in there. But everything else is a lie. Sex is sex, Tess says. Sex is sex. That's not connected with love. Enemies lie. And we're reaping the whirlwind in the world because of it. Never shared with strangers. Now, I need to... Um, about out of time i need to address the question especially for those of you who are here who are single or know someone and love someone who is single not married and the question is this is sex a right that's part of the worldview many worldviews that we're hearing in our culture that sex i have a i have a right to sex i don't know how many of you um read the backstory behind the um, terrorist attack called a terrorist attack uh, four weeks ago in Canada in Toronto where a man drove down a street and hit people with his van and killed 10 and injured 15 I think did you hear his connection with the incel movement are you familiar with the incel movement I just, I just learned about this this week incel I-N-C-E-L stands for uh, it's a group of men, and there are literally tens of thousands of men who have identified as incel members. It stands for involuntarily celibate. It's men who are too unattractive or socially inept that they can't get uh, women to sleep with them. And so they're angry at women. They're angry at the world, but they're especially angry at women. And and this is the, this is the truth. Well, I'm about to tell you the truth. There's an article out there that proposes that like welfare sex should be allocated to everybody that needs it and so these men who can't have sex should have somebody looking out for them and make sure that sex is provided for them I don't even know where to start with that and yet the argument could lie within your heart if you're not married you're like how why is it that i should be deprived of sex don't i have a don't i have a right to it here's what you have a right to you have a right to pursue marriage you have a right to pursue marriage listen to what paul says in first corinthians chapter 7 beginning of verse 8 So I say to those who aren't married, and um, 
if you didn't know this, the Apostle Paul was not married, he was single. I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn with lust. And it's a is a recognition on Paul's part that, that we are sexual beings. There is a sexual drive placed within us. And, and, and if you cannot forego that, then you should pursue not lust, not sex, but you should pursue a mate. You should pursue a relationship in which now your sexual uh, desires can be met and again can point us to look up. And not just hook up. So we have a, a, a right to pursue marriage. But that's a, that right of having sexual relations is only limited to a married man and woman. And God has given some a gift of celibacy. We often laugh about this and say it's God's great gift that nobody wants. But Paul does describe it as a gift in the same chapter in verse 6. He says God gives some this gift. He's talking about marriage. And he gives some this gift. He's talking about singleness and celibacy. So the answer to the question is no. God does not give sex as a right to everyone. He gives the pursuit of marriage as a right to everyone. This is important for us as we think in the weeks ahead about about things like uh, adultery and, and sex before marriage and homosexuality and we'll be delving into weird, uh, more cutting edge things you want to call it that way like uh, polyamory and so forth and then we're going to wrap up the final week talking about what about transgenderism and how does that um, how should we think about that as followers of Christ uh, let me wrap up with a couple of, uh, of thoughts and suggestions the first one especially to parents if you're looking for some help in having the conversations with your kids about sexual matters, um, I'm going to have Chad put up on the board here um, a, a website where you can get some resources. There's not a lot out there. Um, this is something that's, uh, I think, really good from what I've looked at. I think could be really helpful because one of the things that's difficult with our kids is just how do we get the conversation going? And, and, and how do we frame it in a bibli- with a biblical worldview? And so that's what these uh, are. If you go to intoxicatedonlife.com, intoxicatedonlife.com, uh, mom and a dad, Luke and Tricia Gilkerson, they have three um, studies. Um, like the first one's just seven lessons, seven Bible lessons. And there's good graphics there, but it, it helps you engage your kids. So uh, the talk is seven lessons for ages, uh, kids ages 6 to 10. And then there's another one, changes for kids uh, 8 to 12. And then last one, relationships for kids ages 11 to 14. Now, Betty and I, uh, we had the talk with each of our kids. But I look back and say we did not lay a good foundation, especially when our kids were younger, to have open conversation as they got older about sexual matters. And so when we, when we would try to talk with them about sex, there was this discomfort, ill at ease, and, and they're not ready to talk. And so have smaller conversations with your kids when they're younger so that they see it as normal, that this can be a, a, a kind of an open communication place. Because make no mistake about it, what I said earlier is true. If you do not, if you create a vacuum when it comes to sexual matters, somebody else is going to step into that vacuum and probably not going to share the things with them 
that you would. Uh, a couple of thoughts to you who are single. And this is especially for you men. You may end up being single all your life, but you don't know that. You should prepare for marriage. You should prepare for marriage. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Statistically, the average man now gets married. The average marrying age is 29 and a half for guys. That's a growing concern to a lot of Christian leaders. What's going on? We know there's a variety of things that come into play. One, uh, because of the wreckage of the homes of previous generations, a lot of people are just scared of marriage. I don't want my marriage to go down in flames. I don't want it to end up in divorce. So there's, there's a fear there. Uh, there's, there's concern about finances. I just found out two weeks ago that my dad was, uh, I have an older sister and a younger sister. And my dad, after my older sister was born, uh, my mom wanted to have another child and he didn't. Uh, my, my parents are 89 and 90. I'm just finding this out. And I'm, I'm like, well, why? And mom said, well, dad thought kids are expensive, you know, and he can't really afford another, another child. I remember working with a guy years ago. He was 30 and he'd been married eight years and they didn't have any children. And it came out that he was, uh, he was afraid of the expenses of marriage. Uh, I'm sorry, of having children. And it's true. Kids are expensive. But everybody figures it out. And you do the same with uh, marriage. And I understand if you have a lot of school debt, you might w- want to work a couple of years alone and try to get that chiseled away at. But if you, if you think that you're ever going to have enough money to get married, you're not. You're going to figure that out as you go, and God's going to shape you and mold you and change you and push you and, and teach you stewardship lessons and so forth along the way. Part of getting ready for marriage is changing your thinking maybe about things like like money. Part of preparing for marriage is just developing your faith, nourishing your faith. It's far too many, I didn't get saved until almost six years after we got married. I thought I was saved, but I didn't. And, and too many times, I think, uh, especially this is true of us as men, we kind of get our act together spiritually once we get married and have responsibilities and, and we kind of act cavalier and loose about our faith before marriage. Nurture your faith now. You should be setting the pace for others and your time in the word and your you know, being, uh, nourishing your soul and becoming a man of prayer. You do that now so that you're a good catch for some young lady down the road and pursue holiness. Now that's, I'm not thinking about just pornography, but I am including pornography in that. If you think that when you get married, this pornography habit is going to go away because now you'll have an outlet, make no mistake about it. You are being shaped as a sexual being by that pornography. Pursue holiness now, not just with pornography, but all other, pursuing a life that is lived uh, before God as, a, as an offering of sacrifice, that you're becoming a, a man who desires to see the gospel proclaimed around the world, that you, you are growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, that you are in good fellowship with other believers rather than just kind of running around and doing your own thing solo. Pursue holiness. And then lastly, my com- a couple comments to you married couples. If sex, and this is a, a, a setup for next Sunday, if sex provides a glorious peak into heaven 
and into the husband that is there waiting for those of us who know Christ, then why is it that some Christian husbands and wives settle for a blah sex life that does nothing to get either themselves or others to look up? Why is it? And next week, we want to t- I want to talk to us as husbands and wives about why it is we should pursue a great sex life and how we can. That's enough. Let's pray together. Father, um, what an incredible gift you have given humanity, which, truth be told, we have in so many ways trashed, distorted, um, trampled on, um, drawn bad conclusions about, um, sent either inadvertently or on purpose in uh, messages to our kids that really don't reveal the wonder of the gift that you've given us. And, and so we just say, help us, Lord, by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, to recapture and reclaim a Christian worldview of this phenomenal, mind-boggling gift in such a way that married couples would be drawn to look up and even the world would be drawn to look up. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.